I believe there's children's church, so if you want to head down there right now, you can make your way down there. Everyone else, if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 2 today, and if you're new here and you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, the blue Bibles in the seats in front of you are there for you to take as a gift to you, and uh, uh, I hope you would, uh, I hope you take advantage of that. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a question, and that is, uh, have you ever faced a problem in your life so big and so complex that the sheer size of the problem stopped you dead from actually doing something about it? Anybody? No, yeah, okay, you, you know what I'm talking about a little bit. It's not, you're, it's, it's a situation in which uh, uh, you need to act, you have to act, but the problem is so big that the sheer size of it may, scares you to the point where you're not sure what to do, and the result is that you do nothing. I remember, uh, I remember the most memorable time that happened in my life was my first job, my first full-time job at Value Village. I was uh, tasked as uh, the back order guy. So I was the guy in the back sorting the donations as they came, they came in. And I remember the first day on the job, I walked in so excited that I was going to make $8 an hour. And uh, I put on my smock, I walked into the back warehouse, and I found my supervisor, which she was standing in front of a 30-foot by 20-foot pile of cardboard boxes. And she said, welcome to work. This all has to be flattened in with one, one hour. So I stood in front of the pile of boxes, and suddenly I became overwhelmed at the task because I wasn't sure how to accomplish it in the time allotted. So instead of actually getting to work, I spent five to ten minutes just trying to strategize. How am I going to do this? How am I going to get it done? Uh, what's the best way to get these boxes done? Ten minutes later, so now 20 minutes have gone by, and I haven't flattened a single box, and I, I go to my supervisor and I say, I don't know if I can get it done in time. And her words, she looked at me and gave me advice about those boxes that I have actually taken with me to every complicated problem that I have faced in life. She smiled at me, gave me a knife, and told me to keep it simple. Just break down one box at a time, right? And I have found that experience to be a great analogy and metaphor for solving complex problems we find in life, whether they be financial, relational, uh, church issues, all that kind of thing, is that you look at a sheer problem and you break it down into something a little bit simpler, chunks, chunks that you can do at a time. And I actually think that can be true for biblical instruction as well. Think of it this way. If you've gone to church for any length of time, you will hear numerous commands about how you should live. And I found that sometimes the sheer amount and size of the biblical instruction is so big and so vast that as I look at what the Bible has asked me to do as a believer, I come at it like I did those pile of boxes and I freeze. I just look at all the commandments that I'm expected to do everything in Ephesians chapter 4 to 6 that I'm asked to do, and I'm just like, I can't remember it all. It's so big, it's so vast, they're so numerous, I don't know where to begin. And so the 
The answer is, is like, I do nothing. I freeze. And I think that maybe that there are some of you that actually might feel the same way. When you come to church, it's like you're drinking from a fire hose sometimes. And we're getting fed, but we're only taking in a fraction of what we're learning. Then I want you to understand what I'm getting at here is you might come to Sunday school and you might open up the word in Sunday school and you might have like two or three truths that really stick out and go, those are really good, that's awesome, I'm going to take those home. And then you actually come into the service and you're introduced to theologically rich hymns. And, they, and they're just so jam-packed jam with doctrine that you go from one doctrine to the next without really... Uh, sitting on it and meditating on it and letting it into your heart, and then you hear the message, and you and you, there's there's truth in there that you are supposed to learn, and then just for fun, maybe you go home and maybe you listen to your favorite podcast or preacher during the week, and so you're jam packed with all this truth, but it's so much that during the week you just kind of go, I don't know where to start, and so what winds up happening is that you don't start at all. You don't make a change. You don't change, do anything at all. <clears throat> and so what I think needs to happen is we need to look at the big pile of spiritual truths, the sheer uh, numerous commands that God has asked us to uh, fulfill in our lifestyle and break it down one box at a time. We need a way that it can all be summed up that's easy for us to remember, a summary of everything that is being said so that it doesn't feel so overwhelming and we can get to work because the, the core thing of discipleship and following Jesus is that the Bible tells us that we are not only to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. You should be coming to church or listening to your favorite podcast or going to your Bible study or whatever it is, and there should be something different about how you live and change. And sometimes the reason why there isn't is because there's so much being thrown at us that we don't know where to start. So I think a simple summary of what is being asked of us will help us go a long way into following Jesus. And that is what our text actually deals with this morning. So I want to read it to you. This is the first two, chap or two verses of chapter 5. And it reads like this. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering in a sacrifice to God. So that's it. That's the summary of everything that you and I are supposed to do. Imitate God and walk in love. And so what I'd like to do today is i just like to explore a little bit today about what it means to imitate God, what parts of God we should not imitate, what parts of God we should imitate, and then how do we go about it. So before we continue, let's pray. Father, thank you for the day, and thank you for your goodness and kindness. I pray that as we open up your word, that your Holy Spirit would convict us, that you would help us follow your example and uh, be an imitator of you and the attributes where we can, and where we're uh, inappropriately imitating you, God, that we wouldn't. God, would you speak to us and convict us about where this should apply in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so let's go through this and break it down uh, chunk by chunk. So let's start with the word, therefore, okay? And we're like, oh no, 
is doing one word at a time. This is going to be a long one. <laughs> but uh, I want to start with therefore. And if you've ever uh, been at church a, a lengthy, long time, you've probably heard a cheesy saying regarding this word, right? What's the cheesy saying? What's the therefore, therefore, right? And I know it's cheesy, and I hate cheese, but, but it, it's kind of corny, but I like cheesiness if it works. And so in your own Bible reading, when you are doing your own bi- private Bible reading and you're on your own, and you're just reading a text and it has the word therefore, always kind of circle it and, and, and just kind of don't, uh, don't uh, go by a, uh, haphazardly. Just kind of ask the critical question, why is the therefore, therefore? And, uh, and in this case, what the therefore means is that it means this, is on the basis of what we just said, on the basis of everything that we've been talking about in the last four chapters leading up to here, I need you to act this way. So it's important for us just to do a quick review of what we were talking about in Ephesians. So if you remember quick, quickly, we, uh, we've been spending the better part of the year uh, going through Ephesians, and we've been titling it The Who and The Do. And the reason that we're talking about that is because chapters 1 through 3 talk about your, your standing in Christ, your riches in Christ, who you are in Christ. They explain the gospel. It's a lot of theology. It's a lot of doctrine. And in chapter 4 to 6 actually talk about uh, how, what you were to do because of that. So basically, in, in, case, in case you just need a summary of the first three chapters, basically the main idea behind chapters 1 through 3 is this, is that somebody outside of yourself has to give you your own purpose and meaning and identity. Okay. I think this is very crucial for us today if we were going to fulfill the Great Commission in our time. Somebody outside yourself has got to name you. Has got to give you a vision for your life. I was reading this book uh, called uh, uh, the, Rise and, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it's looking at the issue of identity today. And the argument that he's making is, is a very academic book. He's making, making the argument is that today, what it used to be that eons and eons and eons ago you would look to something outside of yourself to give you meaning and identity. So God would define you, or your church would define you, or your job would define you. But what has happened today is that ever since the Enlightenment, the individual is responsible for defining who they are. And it's culminated into what we've seen today. But the basic idea really is this, is that you need somebody outside of yourself to give you a passion and vision for your life. What kind of person should that be? Well, if you've been reading Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, you should know that this person should be someone that will never let you down or disillusion you. This person should, this person should be someone who is not fickle, who is up and down depending on how well you perform. And the only person qualified to actually speak into your life and give you an identity like that is someone who adores you and will never break your heart, and that person is Jesus Christ. You need someone from the outside to speak into you, and the only outside person qualified is Jesus himself. If you're going to follow God's example, 
you're going to need an identity that is strong enough to handle your success and failure. You need an identity that is built upon something stable where you don't need people to validate you in order for you to feel like you're, you mean anything. You need someone to speak an identity over you so strong you can handle it when the world crumbles around you. When you can't work the farm anymore, when, you can't, when your family leaves you, when, you're, when, when your kids are, are gone, when you can't define yourself by your marriage anymore, and you, if you ever feel sorry for yourself, or you are given to self-pity, and you think that life has given you a raw deal, then my recommendation to you is to read the first three chapters of Ephesians because it gives a theological basis for who you are. Okay? It's important that we understand that because we, that he's impact all that theology of this doctrine because now all that doctrine is going to filter down into the way you live. And that's actually what chapter 4 and 6 is about. This is who you are. This is the gospel of Christ. This then now is how it filters down and how you act like that way. And I want you to understand that theology always translates into how you live your life. I know that there's some of us here that don't like doctrine and don't like theology and don't like all that kind of thing, but I, I really want to tell you that the way that you live comes in, in your theology filters down into the way that you should live. Okay? So it's really, really important that you understand your riches and blessings in Christ. It translates in this, to help you to understand how theology transfers into the way that you live. Imagine that you're rich. Okay? Let's say you got like a billion quadrillion dollars. You're like Bruce Wayne. Okay? You're, you know, pick whoever rich person you want to be, okay? You're rich, you have all this money, but you live as though you are poor. And by poor, I just don't mean you're living a, a, a poorer lifestyle. I mean that you don't have any clothes on your back, you can't feed yourself, you can't, you, you, you don't have a job, you're living on the streets. It feels a little weird to, 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 that there would be that kind of disconnect, right? Because you have all these riches over here, and you think that those riches should translate into a different way to live. And that's actually the way it works in Christ. Is that Ephesians 1 through 3 tells you that you have all these bless, blessings in Christ, you are rich. And then therefore, 4 through 6 actually says that because you're rich in Christ, this is how you should live. Okay? So it can be all some. So basically, that's all in that one word. Okay. So basically, when you look at the word "therefore," you can read it uh, on this on this basis. This is how I would sum up uh, verse one: on the basis that you are a child of God, imitate God and walk in love. That's how I would talk about it. That's that. That's how simple it is. I can't think of any two commands that better characterize the lifestyle of a Christian follower than to imitate God and walk in love. Because everything that you, um, Ephesians tells us to do, forgiving each other, using our spiritual gifts, being pure, not getting drunk, speaking the truth in love, being wise with your time, singing songs of praise, leading your home well, putting the armor of God up, can be summed up in the idea that you are, the whole total of it is to imitate God and to walk in love. It is that simple. Okay? 
Someone was sharing earlier that it's about a simplistic gospel. And I just want to say that that's the box that you start with. You start with the idea that the entire Bible from beginning to end, when it tells you to all these commands, the idea is that you are to imitate God and to walk in love. But that can actually pose a little bit of a problem. Because there's a sense in which we should imitate God and there's a sense in which we shouldn't. And I'm going to say this, is that we can only imitate qualities of God that you and I are capable of imitating. And I want to be careful with this because I want to make sure I'm not really confusing with this. Because when you read the Bible, it does make the command that you are to use Jesus as the example. Okay? that you are to follow and to be like Jesus. But I want to also say to you, there's a sense in which that's not true because there are certain things about Jesus that you can't copy, that only Jesus can be. And so if you say to yourself that the whole point of being a Christian is to follow God's example, there's a point at which you can't. And what I mean by that is there are certain attributes about God that are incommunicable, that we can't mimic. What can't we, and so I think it's really important for us to ask the question, what can we imitate about God and what can't we imitate about God? So let's start with what we can't imitate about God. There's a lot, but I want to think that the core one I want to bring to you is that we can't imitate God as the hero and savior. You understand? Okay. When Jesus, when you look at your life and my life, and we look about the great story of God, the thing about it is that you and I are not the hero of the story. Jesus is. Jesus is the one that comes and saves us. Jesus is the one that rescues you. Jesus is the one that comes into you. And if you try to copy that aspect of God, you actually run into a big problem. You are not the savior of your own story. Jesus is. You know what our role in the story is? We play the victim in the story. We're the ones that are powerless. We're the ones that need help. We're the ones that need a savior. And so that aspect of God, we can't copy. We can't copy him being a hero. And yet, the reason that I'm bringing this up is because I think that out of all the attributes of God that we can't copy, this is the one that's most easily, uh, easy for us to fall into as Christians because we try to be the hero in other people's lives. We tend to rescue other people when, in ta- and when, we, and when we can't. And what do I mean by rescuing? Well, basically, I mean this. Is that, you want to hit the slide for me, the thing's not working. Is that we can't imitate God as the Savior. We can't rescue people because rescuing entitles and means this. Is that whenever you and I are deeply afraid that the, the relationships and friends in our life won't make the right decisions, what we tend to do is we threaten to punish them, manipulate them, or control them to do the right action. That's playing the role of the hero. That's imitating Jesus in a way that you can do. Let me explain what I mean by this. Years ago, when I was a child... I had a friend of mine who was a kleptomaniac. You know what that means? He likes stealing stuff. Except he wasn't really good at it. 
and that he would continually be caught by mall security or the department store security. And I had a heart for him, and I felt like I needed to rescue him and be his savior. So instead of the, the police, instead of him calling his parents whenever the mall security arrested him, he would call me, and I would get a call from the security guard saying, if you don't make it here in 20 minutes, I am going to call the police and arrest your friend. So I would go, and I would, I would save my friend from the police, and I wouldn't tell their parents when I probably should have. Right? And then I would act as the dad, and I would give a really long lecture about that. And lo and behold, he would do it again. And then I would get super mad because I was the one that was going out of my way and rescuing him. I was the one that was going out of my way uh, knowing that I would get in trouble. And so that's what I mean by when you are rescuing someone and you are imitating God in a way that you're not supposed to. It's this. It's when you threaten to punish somebody. So maybe the idea is, is that they're making a decision that you don't like and that you threaten not to talk to them right? as a way of punishment or you manipulate them, or you try to control the circumstance in, it, in such a way that they have to do what you say. And I think when you and I do that, you and I are uh, playing the role of the Holy Spirit. And what winds up happening is, here's what winds up happening when you and I play that role, is oftentimes people notice that we're trying to do that, and they don't do what we want anyway, and then what, what ends up happening is we get really mad and upset okay, that they're not following what we're doing. Am I saying it's wrong to help other people? No, of course not. But a healthy way of looking at it would let God determine what is best for others and how they should live without enabling, controlling, or punishing or asking for anything in return. So my question to you simply is this. Is this an area where you are imitating the right aspect of God or the wrong aspect of God? <clears throat> or maybe to break it down further, let me ask a different question. Is there a specific thing you do in your relationships with other people to control or rescue others, expecting some kind of response only for them to be get, become upset when they don't respond the way that you want. I would actually take some time to think about that. You and I cannot play the role of the Savior, that we're not, we're not the saviors of the story Jesus is. So then the question becomes, what can we copy of God? What are the aspects of God that we can copy? And here's what I'm going to say about that, is that we can imitate his character, to reflect, I would ask, when the Bible says to imitate God and his character, you need to understand that we get, the, we get our English word mimic from that. So the idea is, is that I want you to mind God, I want you to copy God, not in his incommunicable attributes, but in his character, in the way that he lives, in the fact that he forgives. To effectively imitate someone, we must first understand their nature and their character. And as Christians, we know that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. His love is not based on conditions or human standards, but it's selfishness, selfish, sacrificial, and unconditional. Therefore, to imitate God, we are called to love others in the same manner. 
So I would ask, so it's so when it's calling you to imitate God, it's saying, listen, I, I want you to imitate his character. So I, I don't know if you know this or not, but when you look at the Ten Commandments, for example, and you look at them, you know that every single one of them you and I are called to follow through with or to abstain from because it's actually a reflection of his character. So when God says to be honest, when he says don't lie, it's because the God is truthful. When he says to not covet your neighbor's wife, it's because God is faithful. Okay? And so you need to understand that when it comes to imitating God, it's his character, his love. And so how do you do that? Well, I'm just going to give you two ways that from Scripture do you do that, and then we'll close up. The first is to remember your identity. Listen to what the text says here, and the second is to walk in love. So verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Imitating God starts by understanding that you and I can't look inside yourself to find who we are. We need to own the fact that we are children of God. And when you're his child, you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven, you've been lavished grace with wisdom and insight, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, you are saved by grace, you are one race because you're the child of God. And when you own that identity, then you can actually imitate God because children copy their parents, don't they? Right? They do. I don't, I don't know, the, the other day... Uh, uh, I, uh, my, my dad was here like a, a couple months ago, and during that time, my sink broke, right? And I had no idea. It was the first house. I've never done any plumbing in my life. So uh, we got a new faucet, and we started putting it together, and I did it. And then James was watching, right? And James was watching us put together all, all the tubes and all that kind of stuff and the glue. And he's like, okay, Daddy, I'm, I'm going to watch and I'm going to learn. I'm just going to see if the water's not pouring out in his sink. And so whatever I did, he copied, right? It was crazy. He's like, and the other day, he was like, Dad, I'm going to be a plumber. And I was like, are you going to be a plumber because Dad was the plumber or because Super Mario is a plumber? And he's with Super Mario. But my point is, is that children <laughs> mimic their parents, Okay. In, in good ways and bad ways. I remember, uh, I remember a, a year ago, it was really hot in the summertime, and you know, James took off his shirt every day after dinner at the table, and, and Liz could not, for the life of him, uh, for the life of her, get him to wear a shirt. And then he realized, because I was walking around the shirt with a, without a shirt, children copy their parents. Okay? And so when you root your identity in Christ, then it's an easy and natural way to think of it uh, or the fact that you're a child, then you can be humble enough to actually mimic God the way that a child mimics the parents. Okay. Secondly, we are to walk in love. It says this in verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved for us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and to sacrifice to our God. In the ancient world, uh, let, let, let me uh, actually go back up and explain this. When you read this text, it's hard not to uh, miss the fact that it, it tells you to walk in love. The word walk is, appears many times in, in, uh, in this book. Chapter 2, uh, a total of six times actually. It happens in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 and 2, chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 17. And after this, it actually happens in verse 5, 515. In the ancient world, 
If you were to go walking somewhere, you didn't hop in your car, you walked. And the longer that you walked, the more you would choose friends that you would walk with you. In the Christian walk, our journey is to Jesus. And we should have traveling companions. And Paul says is that we are to love the pe- people along our way and journey to Jesus. The problem here is that love is such a vague term that I think that no one is saying that love is a bad idea, right? Love is love. And in fact, I got to tell you that whenever I get to a passage that talks about love, I actually cringe at it because of the whole like love is love and we should love everybody and the whole, the whole thing that's going on right now. But I want to say to you that when the Bible says walk in love, it's not the, the love that, that, that the world defines as love. It's a biblically defined love. You actually have to let the Bible define what is love and what is not love. Okay? In verse 2, Paul focuses our attention on the sacrificial love of Christ, which serves as the pinnacle of God's love towards humanity. A fragrant offering, he says. Paul describes Christ's love as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The imagery draws up the Old Testament sacrificial system where offerings were presented as a pleasing aroma or smell to God. In a similar way, Christ's sacrifice on the cross was a pleasing and acceptable offering to God, demonstrating his perfect obedience and love. Through his sacrificial act, Jesus demonstrated the power of love to transform lives. His love was not passive or superficial, but attractive and transformative. His sacrifice reconciled God to us, redeemed us from our sin, and offered us the gift of eternal life. Such is the power of love when it is lived out sacrificially. When walking in love is not sporadic or occasional act, it is meant to be a lifestyle. It involves showing kindness, compassion, forgiveness, selflessness towards others. It means putting the needs of others before our own and seeking their well-being of comfort. And when we walk in love this way, it has a profound impact, not only on our lives, but the world around us. Our love becomes a testimony of the reality of Christ's love and the power of the gospel. And it has the potential to break down barriers, heal wounds, and bring about the transfer, transformational lives that we want to encounter. And all of that is summed up in the idea of imitating God and walking in love. So all the commands that we are about to, to, to look, look through, the how to lead in the home, putting on the armor of God, being careful about what your time is, forgiving all that, that is all summed up. It all funnels into this idea of imitating God and loving each other well. And so when you go forward and you look at all the commands in the Bible that you were supposed to, supposed to follow through with, just remember to start with that one simple thing. Is that the idea is that we are to imitate God and walk in love. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Let's do one more song and close out.